0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends
1: or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Lynchings were shockingly common
2: in American history. A new film makes the case that everyone is haunted by that violence, whether we want to talk about it or not.
0: The silence and the cover-up has come out of this idea that people need to be in polite conversation and always comfortable, but it's in discomfort is where you have the opportunity to evolve and to move past where you are.
2: I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, the director of Always in Season before its premiere on PBS. And Nikki Giovanni was once considered a black radical. She's now one of the most celebrated living poets and reads at Emory this weekend. We talk with her about growing old, teaching the young, and the arc of her own history.
3: So when I look back, which I seldom do because I don't want to get caught in what I said 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. I want to be able to to have grown from that.
2: Plus, freestyle rap as a tool for building confidence, competence, and community. All coming your way. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting. This is on second thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. At 17, Nikki Giovanni enrolled at Fisk University. She was soon asked to leave for expressing attitudes unbecoming a Fisk woman. The year was 1960. A decade later, she was named Woman of the Year by Ebony Magazine times changed. The now 77-year-old distinguished professor at Virginia Tech has evolved with them. Nikki Giovanni is among the most celebrated living poets. She's published nearly 30 collections of poetry, essays, anthologies and a number of children's books. She was a pioneer in the Black Arts movement of the 60s and 70s and cited as an influence by hip-hop artists. She's giving a free reading at Emory University Saturday afternoon at 4, but we caught up with her at WVTF in Roanoke. Nikki thank Thank you so much for being with us.
3: I'm delighted to be here.
2: Well, let's go back. You did go back to Fisk in 1964, later got an honors in history. And I'm interested in hearing your perspective on that because you write about history a lot. You know, the Rosa Parks, uh, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, but about history writ large, the big picture. How, How do you think of history?
3: Uh, I think that every story probably has to be retold probably about every decade, but certainly every every century. I think there's just no no question. And uh, I was laughing recently, uh, Virginia, because uh, I dislike Thanksgiving and I dislike the idea of, of what they're calling pardoning some turkey. It had to be maybe 10 years or so ago. And I was looking at the turkey, not the one who was going to be Pardoned <laughs> oh. because— That's what he understood, or she, but the one who's left behind. And 13 years ago, my mother passed, Mm -hmm. and uh, a month later, my sister passed. And it wasn't those making the transition. It was we who are left behind. I guess what I'm really saying is that I think it's really important to grow old because being young, you don't think like that. Being young, you just think everything is normal. But when you grow old, you begin to see this is how things uh, felt.
2: Well, I want to pull out some of those threads because I'm thinking of the book that you wrote, Acolytes. This is after your mother died, your sister died, and I think you lost an aunt about that My same aunt. time. Mm-hmm. And Rosa Parks, who was a, a good friend of yours at about that time. But also, I think in that book, you write about telling other people's stories and that kind of deep personal conversation. So so how is that part of how you remember
3: and and process that grief? We we have to be a part of Well, we are a part of everything that's alive, and I I just don't see how we can ignore. But, you know, at my age, I'm supposed to grow. I'm supposed to have learned something, so I'm not embarrassed that I have continued to grow Life is, is in, incredibly interesting to me, and I recommend. I was just speaking at St. John's recently, and, of course, that's a, a, an academy. It's
4: mm-hmm.
3: kids, youngs, And I, I said to them, you know, this is the most difficult, you know, being 13 and 14. That's what's really hard because when you get to about 50, it's wonderful. You begin to look at life differently, and why wouldn't you? You, you can't spend 50 years and not ever having learned anything. Mm.
2: You— uh Many years ago, interviewed James Baldwin, Muhammad Ali, Mary McCabe on this uh, television program called Soul. This was on New York Public Television. And so, when you interview James Baldwin early on, you acknowledge that you and the younger African American writers of the time looked to writers like him that came before you. And and you ask him how he thinks of your generation. This ignites a total conversation. Let's hear just a little bit of that,
5: Nikki. There's a very great risk of pulling, of seeming to pull rank.
3: No. Oh. You know. <laughs> pull rank. You know I'm, not, I'm not. Go yeah. on. I'm not. <laughs> no.
5: But I'm, no. No, I don't mean that. But no. What I do mean is that I've, a great many things which seem, if I
3: may say so, new to you are not new to me. Okay. Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. So I'm just thinking, you know, you've been a professor at Virginia Tech since what, 1987? And and before that— two years. Yeah, taught at Rutgers, shaping the minds of the next generation of creatives. So I'm wondering how you, you know, what kind of things are they pushing back against that were not known to you?
3: Well, I, I, I worry uh, just a little bit about the younger writers because I think that too much of what they're interested in is uh, what, what they are calling success, which is not successful. And I start my classes actually by asking, what's the number one bestseller? Hmm. in New York Times or Los Angeles Times bestseller. And of course, nobody knows the number one bestselling list. So if you don't know what it is, then why do you want to be it? Hmm. So let's talk about something else. Let's talk about what is a great book. And as we start to talk about great books, let's talk about the great writers. They're all dead. So one of the things you know is that if you're a great writer, you're probably not going to know it because you're going to be dead <laughs> and your book will be there, but you're gone. So Don't we want to try to be honest, and don't we want to try to be part of that which is living? Because the rest of it doesn't matter. I think that they've made these kids be—and everybody, we're Americans, so you know you need money. But they've made these kids too money-conscious. And I think that that's a shame, that everybody wants to write a a stupid book about something coming from outer space, and then you want to have a dumb movie made out of it. (laughs) You know, you have to say, like, oh, please— there's something more wonderful. I'm, I'm a space freak, and I think that whatever's in space is, is incredibly wonderful. And I think that um, space is important because especially we who are black have already done that because we have gone from Africa through Middle Pastures. That was space to come to America. That had to be frightening. But we had to say goodbye to somebody. And I live in Virginia, and Virginia calls itself the peanut state. But there are no peanuts in Virginia until the Africans came. And so I always saw the grandmother recognizing, and it always makes me cry, so I'm not going to cry, I hope, on the, on the radio. But the grandmother had to put a peanut in her grandson's fist and say, remember me.
2: Hmm.
3: If my granddaughter gets to go to Saturn, I'm not sure what I would put in her hand. I have a pair of earrings that my, grandma, that my mother gave me. Maybe I would put those in her hands and say, remember me. Am I making sense? Now? You are. And what a thought, you know, the things they carry. Remember, I,
2: there was that book about Vietnam, you know, like what people carried with them as yeah. soldiers in their packs. What do you want to carry? What do what you, you know, in your journey at 77 years old now?
3: I pretty much carry my words, I am wrapped in my words and my words are what keeps me. They keep me warm and they keep me happy. So I carry, I mean, that that's, I think, the honest answer. I carry my words because that's all I have. And all I have to give are my words. And therefore, what I have to take when people give it to me are the words they give to me. My guest is Nikki Giovanni,
2: the celebrated activist, the poet, and the writer of children's books, of poems, of essays. She's going to be at Emory University for a reading on Saturday afternoon. You've changed through the years the kind of things that you're interested in that you're writing about, and you want to encourage your students to be the same. So do you ever look back at the early work that you did, you know, 67, 68, when your first couple of volumes of poetry came out, self-published, by the way, and see, oh, what was I thinking? Or does it all feel true to you some kind of way? Does it, does it still connect to you?
3: Well, you're only going to be young once, and then you go to middle age, and then you go to being old. I don't think you can, I don't think you can blame yourself. And I think that some of my earlier work actually is pretty good. I think ego tripping is a pretty good point. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, Nicky Rosa is a pretty good point. But what I want my students to learn is you do your best. It's not about that phony sense of winning and losing. It's about doing your best. So when I look back, which I seldom do because I don't want to get caught in what I said 50 years ago, mm-hmm. I want to be able to have grown from that. I'm just – I'm. I'm a weed. you threw me in the in the grass, and my new book, which will be out in in September, It's called "Make Me Rain." When I got into the grass into the soil, if I can get water, if the rain comes, I will grow, and that's all I've been trying to do nikki it's it's uh,
2: just listening to you talking to James Baldwin in that little clip that we heard. Looking at the generations that came before you, I'm curious, you know, not many young women in the 1960s, especially women of color, were thinking, I'm going to make my living as a writer.
3: How would that happen for you? I think writing was probably always my thing because I don't have any other talent. And it happened because I'm not pretty. I can't sing or dance. I'm not able to act. What else could I do? All I could do was watch. And if you watch, what do you have? You have words. My ego does not require me to be what other people want me to be. So all I wanted to be was me, and that's words. All I have are words.
2: What are the kind of things that you are thinking about with your words now? I know you've been deeply influenced by spirituals. You've written a anthology about spirituals. What are the words that speak to you now?
3: Oh, I, I think, first of all, that the enslaved are incredible that uh, the words that they put together, uh, I, I, I love it. But there was a, a spiritual guide. going to set this world on fire. Yes, yes, yes. I love that. And now the world's on fire. So that, that's, that's really good. And they're talking about heaven, heaven. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And so, you, again, you look at the spirituals, which are, are incredible. And I'm working with, uh, I don't know if you know him, Virginia, Javon uh, Jackson. He played saxophone music lessons. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, he's
2: been around for a long time.
3: Oh, yeah. But we're getting ready to do what he wants to call the gospel according to Nikki. I don't know that we're going to call it. Yet. <laughs> but we're doing uh, we're doing 10 songs together. And I'm I'm thrilled. I I just the spirituals are so comforting and so wonderful. So, um Working with Giovanni, is, it, it's just wonderful.
2: Well, I know we have to close, but, you know, that's funny that you say the gospel according to Nikki. I've seen a bunch of photos of you. There, It's on the cover of books, but sometimes, you know, just the photographs of Nikki Giovanni speaking, you've got your hands upraised like a choir director, you know, bringing people up to the highest heights, or, or like a preacher preaching to the flock. Are you a preacher at all, do you think, Nikki?
3: <laughs> I hope not. You know, I didn't notice that until— uh, I read an article about me, which I seldom do. I didn't know that I that I did that, and uh, it, it was pointed out to me. So you, you know, you're always raising, when when you're talking, you're always raising your hands up. But I'm I'm glad because uh, it's it's a good thing. I mean, life is a good idea, and if you're gonna be alive, you have to keep growing. And if you grow, there's only one. Well, I guess you can grow down, but it's a good idea to
2: grow up. <laughs> Nikki Giovanni, I want to thank you for your time and really glad to have you back in Atlanta.
3: Oh, thank you, Virginia.
2: Nikki Giovanni. She's a renowned poet and author. She's going to be reading some of her work on Saturday, the twenty-second, at four o'clock at Emory University's Schwartz Center for the Performing Arts. The event is free, but expected to be at capacity. So there's more information at our website, gbbnews.org. Nikki said she couldn't sing, but we heard her singing. Everybody talking about heaven. Well, here's a version from acapella spirituals.
4: Everybody talking about heaven, going there. Everybody talking about heaven,
0: going.
2: Coming up always in season premieres on PBS this Monday, we're going to talk with the director Jacqueline Olive about the legacy of lynching on families and communities, black and white, across the country. That's when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Equal Justice Initiative documents nearly 5,000 lynchings in America between 1877 and 1950, though the number is likely much higher. The vast majority were African-American men. Many were hanged in public events advertised on radio and in newspapers, like the extrajudicial killing of Claude Neal in 1934.
5: His body will be brought to the county seat nine miles from here and hung In the courthouse square for all to see. All white folks are invited to the party.
2: That is Danny Glover from the film Always in Season. The documentary also follows the annual reenactment of four people killed by a mob in Monroe, Georgia, and uses that historical context to explore the investigation of the death of a young black man in 2014. Always In Season makes its television premiere on PBS's Independent Lens on Monday, February 24th. Director and producer Jacqueline Olive was at GBB in Atlanta for a screening and panel discussion on racial justice and reconciliation last week. We later caught up with her by phone to talk about the film and her engagement with viewers in communities. Now, warning here that lynchings are crimes of extreme brutality, and some details may come up in our conversation. So, sensitive listeners and parents, take note. But for now, Jacqueline... Jacqueline Olive, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you for having me,
2: Virginia. The film lays out this big-picture view of the legacy of lynching and stories of particular cases, namely one of interest to those in Georgia and elsewhere, the 1946 quadruple killing at Moore's Ford Bridge on the Walton Oconee line here in Georgia. First, can you give us a broad outline of what happened there?
0: Absolutely. Two couples, the Malcolms and the Dorseys, uh, were driven uh, into an ambush on the Moorsboard Bridge. They were um, pulled out of a car. Um, they were beaten. They were threatened with a noose. And then they were ultimately shot dozens of times. And most people um, uh, think of lynchings as simple hangings. But often uh, the victim may have been beaten, stabbed, hanged, shot, burned alive, or um or tortured in some other way. And it could. there were instances in which all of those things occurred in a single case. And so um, that, uh, that particular murder um, was a lynching. And uh, the reenactors have been dramatizing those events since 2005 to bring attention to this history.
2: Well, and the Biracial Memorial Commission put up a marker at that bridge. This was back in 99. This is something rarely done at the site of lynchings. But I want to talk about that reenactment. Here is some of the sound of it from your film. Jackie, what is what is happening here?
0: Yeah, so I filmed for three years with the reenactors, and they start on a a long uh, summer day and uh, dramatize the events at different sites, and ultimately end up on the Moorsport Bridge. And so, what you're listening to is the sound of the reenactor really um, dramatically portraying what happened to the victims. And you can see um, folks in the crowd who are gathered with cameras to take photographs
2: Well, it is deeply distressing to witness. And we we learned in the film that mostly outsiders come, meaning not residents of Monroe. So there's this shroud of silence over these acts of racial violence, this particular one 70 years ago, that is still intact in this community. And you've been talking to communities across the country about reconciliation and restitution. Is there a story or an example that you've come across of that kind of shroud coming apart and people coming to the table to talk about this.
0: Absolutely. It's happened um, in community after community where we screen the film. Um, it, the, the surprises for me when I started to, to film in these communities, I filmed in eight or nine communities over eight years, starting in 2010. Um, part of the surprise was how resonant um, the losses were for families who had had uh, family members lynched in the early 1900s, so decades and sometimes generations ago. It still is very traumatic for those families. In addition to there being really concrete consequences, there's economic loss of folks like um, Anthony Crawford, who was lynched um, in Abbeville, South Carolina, and more than 400 acres of his land were stolen. There, were, there are still um, economic consequences that reverberate for family members now, um, in addition to family ties being severed and all kinds of consequences. And so the extent of how, um, how immediate the emotions were um, uh, was surprising. Um, in addition to the um, degree of silence, as you mentioned, um, historically there's been a lot of cover-up around lynching, and and um, even still in communities like Monroe, people just don't want to confront this history because they want to to feel they feel as if they've gone they've moved past. Um, uh, these issues of, of racial violence, and and for me, it's uh, important that communities acknowledge this history. It's a sign um, that they're willing to confront issues of racial division that are current and
2: historic. In addition to this reenactment, which is you know a visceral, you you get the sense of the sheer physicality, you know, the feet being dragged along the ground, the, the the screams. But there's also read by Danny Glover, an eyewitness account of the torture of Claude Neal. the photos of charred mutilated bodies in the film. It's profoundly disturbing. So so how do you weigh their impact as a filmmaker showing these scenes?
0: It is very disturbing. was important to me that we handle those images and the information directly. Uh, People shouldn't be comfortable with stories about lynching and should understand the violence without it being gratuitous. So giving people context and information and new ways to look at the images, for example. So lead editor um, Don Bernier, who was just amazing to collaborate with, he and I, we both decided that it was important to have a conversation about how spectators showed up Um, in these stories and these narratives. And so not to just focus on the lynching victims, um, who were, by the way, um, when they were photographed, it was the final way to strip the last bits of their humanity away. And so I was really conscious of not wanting to uh, re-victimize people in that way and to dehumanize people in that way, Um, but to really start a conversation about how spectators and how um, lynchers showed up in this narrative so that we start to focus on um, how this dehumanization can lead to violence. Um, and to to have a, a conversation about lynching that is evolved and that um, is elevated, um, it's much more deep than than whether or not people are angry or who's angry and who isn't everyone has been impacted by this history. When uh, white men, women, and children came out to cheer on the violence, even when they thought it was a great idea, they still had to go home um, in their quiet moments and acknowledge the fact that they witnessed murder, that they were complicit, that um, neighbors um, and people of authority were complicit. And so even when they are not consciously unpacking that, there are things that um, out of this trauma that are passed along. And so it's really important that we all come together for these conversations and start to really unpack um, um, in many ways and in complex ways um, how this history has affected us and, and, and what it looks like today and how it's showing up Um, in institutions today.
2: My guest is Jacqueline Olive. She's director and producer of the film Always in Season. It's a documentary about lynching in America that won a special jury prize at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival for Moral Urgency. It's debuting on GPB this coming Monday. But we had a panel conversation and screening here at GPB, and a big part of the conversation was about discomfort. Dr. Thee Smith of the Southern Truth and Reconciliation, or STAR, was among the panelists panelists in Atlanta. And he said that Starr advised the NAACP against reenactments because it was a form of guilt mongering that would so far polarize white and black audiences that it would defeat the truth and reconciliation process and the trust building that came with it. This opened up a robust discussion and a bit of pushback. Here is one of the panelists, Cassandra Alexander-Green, director of the reenactment.
3: I understand you know, forgiveness, I'm in ministry, I understand all that, but you have to first acknowledge what has happened for me to get to that point where I can forgive you. I get it y'all, I get forgiveness, but you have to talk to me and let me know that I recognize that I did something wrong and that you want to be forgiven, not that you are above me and you don't have to ever ask for forgiveness. To this
2: question of, you know, why is everyone worried about making white people feel uncomfortable? Wondering how that came up in your conversations about restorative justice has been taking place in communities during these screenings.
0: So I I want to start by saying that the work that STAR is doing and Dr. C um, is doing is really um, valuable. It's really vital um, in communities there. And so when I talk about uh, a different opinion about how to approach this work, I think there are many ways that you can approach it. And it's important that we all um, look to doing the work of justice and reconciliation um, however we can. Um, and, and then I'll say that that um, Cassandra, the other emotion that, uh, you know, all of those emotions around trauma are very much on the surface, particularly if you, um, if you are new to the material, you'll see that immediately in the film. And, and I came across that in not just Monroe and Atlanta, but in communities around the country uh, where people were um, really concerned about Uh, addressing this history and directly um, unpacking the details uh, that they were concerned that it was dividing, that it would divide communities. Um, What I found is that as people start to open up, it is because people are um, confronting all of these emotions, pain, anger, fear, guilt, and shame. They're all the, the feelings that I saw people encountering I think it's really important that we're present with them, including guilt. And I think guilt is actually a very, um, when it's authentic, it's a very um, valuable and very powerful emotion because it tells you that there's a change that needs to happen. And and, and all of these emotions, we're all capable of um, handling. We're all capable of handling discomfort. It's important that we are uncomfortable. The silence and the cover-up has come out of this idea that people need to be in polite conversation and always comfortable, but it's the in discomfort is where you have the opportunity to evolve and to move past where you are.
2: Well, that is the big takeaway. This is not something that happened in the distant past, but a continued blight on the American psyche that we all live with. sherilyn Ifill of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund speaks to that in your film.
0: One of the most disturbing legacies of lynching is generational trauma within the black and white communities and yet very different reactions to the stories in the two different communities. Both communities were covered in a shroud of silence. Blacks out of fear, whites out of shame, I think, and fear also. And that silence was never lifted. And so people are acting out in the context of that passed on relationship and they don't know what's at the heart of it. And there are all these
2: institutions that need to come clean about this history. So this is not a, you know, a black people problem or a black American grievance. So as you are engaging in communities, you're doing these impact encounters now that the film is being shown on PBS stations across the country. And I'm curious, you know, like how you get people to the table As we learn in the film, a bunch of the people who had volunteered to be reenactors the first time around in 2005, they they didn't show up the next day, that it is very difficult for people to show up for this kind of thing when there's a lot of pain. And even African-Americans in Monroe say, like, you know, why? I think they should just let the past be the past. So, Jacqueline, I'm wondering what it has been like for you in communities to speak with people first. How do they let down all of the fear that is perceived of actually taking part?
0: Yeah, there, it's, it's been it's, um, been this gradual wave, I think, for the nation to start to look at justice and reconciliation. I remember when I began filming in, in 2010, Trayvon Martin had been gunned down. We hadn't really started as a country to even acknowledge racial violence that's going on now. And then there's the slew of police shootings and vigilante um, killings that are still going on that you see because of cell phone video. Um, and so people are um, increasingly starting to understand that this is, history is not um, ancient history. There's no wall between the past and what's going on now and are really looking at the threads. And so as we have been screening the film across the country, there have been amazing conversations where people – um, showed up, at, didn't, not necessarily understanding how the stories would personally connect with their own lives. But by the end, we're talking very deeply for the first time about issues of race and racism and violence. And, and that, um, that we've had these, these conversations again and again is really exciting for me so that communities can start to imagine what repair looks like, um, in, in addition to pushing institutions for um, financial restitution, for example. Um, it's also about what can what we can do for each other and how we can show up for each other in our communities.
2: Mm-hmm. What is it like for you, Jacqueline, as somebody who's witnessing this? You know, it made this film, for one thing, for 10 years' time, a long slog, certainly, to hear people's vulnerabilities, to hear them show up in ways and talk about things that are so uncomfortable that many, many people just avoid them?
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things I learned about being a good filmmaker and creating a film that can be um, extraordinary is that it requires as a filmmaker that I am vulnerable and that I put all of those vulnerable places um, into the story. And so that when I see people showing up in that same way because they are concerned and, and, and then motivated to look closer at how they can do work, for example, in their communities and schools around issues of, of inequity and in education. Filmmaking um, is something that I love, and so the process, even as heavy as the material can be, the process has always been really exciting for me, making the film, the challenge of it all. Um, I've, I've always embraced in that um, and that I have met people during production who were confronting these issues, who have been inspiring in addition to, to now an impact and engagement um, where people are, despite the discomfort showing up, is just incredibly inspiring for me.
2: There are implications here brought up in the film for our legal institutions, journalism, certainly, the media, how these things are covered and how they have been covered historically. So I will leave that to viewers to see. But I really want to thank you for your time, Jacqueline Olive. Thanks so much, Virginia. Jacqueline Olive, she's director and producer of the film Always in Season, which premieres on Independent Lens on Monday, February 24th. You can find out more about the film, alwaysinseasonfilm.com is the website, including watching a trailer. There's more information also at our website, gbbnews.org. I'm Virginia Prescott with On Second Thought from GPB. Fans of Eric Larson's books Devil in the White City or Dead Wake know his gift for bringing historic events alive in almost cinematic detail next week, the journalist and author will be in Atlanta to talk about his new book, The Splendid and the Vile. The new book adds dimension and behind-the-scenes details to Winston Churchill's leadership during the London Blitz, which stirred Britain's resistance and resilience as almost nightly air raids pommeled England. I'm going to be talking with Larson about the book at the Carter Presidential Library on Wednesday, February 26th. It is a free event, but you can reserve a seat and a book from Acapella Books at our website gpbnews.org. Here's something else going on in the community that we were curious about. Binders, an art supply and frame shop at Atlanta's Ponce City Market, is encouraging customers to get messy. The Splatter Room opened just before Christmas. Binders says the goal is to give people room to access their inner creativity, let go of ideas about perfection, and just have fun. On Second Thought, intern Julia Sanders decided to dip her brush in at the Splatter Room and brought back this postcard.
1: My name is Jade Blecklick. I am the creative and marketing director for Binders, and as far as the splatter room, it was sort of my brainchild, <laughs> so to speak. We've had guests come in who have been very upset or angry about something. You can't tell off the bat if someone's angry, but once they get in there and they start letting that paint fly at the canvas, it's obvious that there's something going on and they're just getting it out. Because you begin to laugh and you get to just kind of this, this feeling of bubbliness comes up. I'm Laura Fryer, and I um, came into the splatter room today to try it out with my team. A red, yes.
3: So I think what I loved most about the Splatter Room is that since you're so protected, you have your body all covered up with cloth and um, you have shoe covers and a hairnet, you feel like you can really just go for it with the paint. It was one of the only experiences I've had where I'm painting where I'm able to just like have fun, let loose, and not really worry about like mixing colors together.
1: Did I get you? You're good. No, no, you're good. <laughs>
3: but more so just about the experience of enjoying a good time with my friends.
1: The Splatter Room gives people the opportunity to go in, unplug, and really enjoy each other and do something creative and just let loose. You get to do this thing where you can let it all out. And there are people who use it as therapy. We've been approached by psychology groups who say, you know, we would like to use it as an art therapy session if we could. We're absolutely open to those kind of ideas. If you're out there and you're just like, oh, I'm not an artist, I'm creative, but, you know, I'm just... You think that you're not creative? Come to the splatter room. Come and throw some paint at a canvas. You'll make some amazing work that you could never imagine that would have come out of your own hands. It's
2: like the drip cakes that are so popular, Laura. Oh, yeah. Sounds from On Second Thought intern Julia Sanders visit to the Instagram-friendly splatter room at Ponce City Market. To see pictures, you can visit gpbnews.org. Each month, a group of budding Atlanta lyricists, some veterans, some novices, gather together, form a circle, and start rapping together. The freestyle rap nonprofit Soul Food Cipher is celebrating its eighth anniversary this month and aims to use the power of words to transform individual lives with ripple effects into broader communities. Here to talk with us is the organization's founder, Alex Acosta, who's described the experience of these ciphers as being like hip-hop church. Alex, also called Cost One, thanks for being here.
4: Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us.
2: We're also joined by Eric Zeno Ludgood. He's co-founder of Soul Food Cipher and one of the master freestylers. Zeno, welcome.
5: Hi. Hi.
2: <laughs> Alex, I'm going to start with you. You sure. have a photojournalism background yes. and we're teaching photography to at-risk youth in the Edgewood neighborhood in Atlanta when the seeds for this organization were first planted in your mind. So what did you notice about how these kids connected with each other?
4: Yeah, so I was... Mentoring at the Whiteford Intel Computer Clubhouse, this is in around 2011, 2012. And the narrative about the kids was that they were not going anywhere because of the neighborhood that they were in or the schools that they were going to. Um, So I had gone there to work with them to teach them photography, but quickly realized the real way we were able to connect was through hip-hop, but more in particularly through the craft of freestyle rap. What we would do is we would get together in a circle called a cypher, and the young people would share their narrative. They would talk about where they were from, but they would also talk about things they normally wouldn't talk to mentors uh, in regular conversations. For example, there was one young man who had started rapping about how he had been shot and how his cousin had been killed. And he pointed down to his leg and said he had taken two shots to the leg. And I looked down and I had never noticed before, but he literally had two bullet wounds mm. in his leg. And it just touched me. Um, I heard many other narratives, narratives of abandonment. But even with that, I also heard hope. You know, I also heard aspirations that they would they would rap about. And I was just thinking this is powerful. You know, there was something about the words that they were using that was like medicine as well. It was it was therapy as well for them to be heard, not only to be able to speak, but also to be heard. And the cipher was the perfect format for that. At the same time, I was freestyling and doing these ciphers with um, friends of mine uh, who were young professionals. And I thought, why not create a safe and nurturing environment for this to take place? Because normally, whenever we talk about freestyle, freestyle is associated with battle rap. But battle rap is all about tearing down. What we were doing at that community center was building individuals.
2: You might have to interpret that for people who don't necessarily know (laughs) freestyle
4: or battle culture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So a battle... Rap or a rap battle in particular is a show in which you have two rappers, or we call them MCs, and they trade insults to one another. It's all about tearing down your opponent. The cipher is a microcosm of our community because you have community leaders, which are those MCs, taking turns to talk about who they are, where they're from. But the flow of the cipher depends on the last person who goes. So essentially, People are sharing a rhyme, but they're building each other in the circle. So we wanted to create a safe and nurturing environment for the craft to be able to grow and also provide an outlet for MCs other than just battle rapping. There's nothing against battle rapping um, per se, but we wanted to create an alternative means. So it's be not like
2: a competition all right. the time.
4: Right. It's not. Okay. It's
2: well, not. Zeno, I wanted to hone in on this idea of the cypher with you a little bit because – I understand that it. it also has a historical context to it. Can you help us walk us through that?
5: Yeah, as far as ciphers, you can trace that back all the way back to even Africa, dancing in a circle, ring shouting, even in the African-American church, the call and response. The way I came in contact with the cipher was uh, I was about to start my own cipher because I had been MCing around Atlanta for a long time, and I didn't have anybody to freestyle with. I had chosen a date and time, and I put some feelers out. Turns out Soul Food Cypher was always already happening on Sundays, which was the day I wanted. And I, so I reached out to Alex, uh, and he was like, well, why don't you come through? I I cypher. And I did, and, yeah, I've been with the organization ever since.
2: Well, Soul Food, also part of the name, mm-hmm. chosen because reflecting on what your organization does, realize A lot of what you do is rooted in traditions from the African diaspora. So in in what ways is that reflected in the programs you're offering now?
4: Absolutely. So our ciphers take place uh, every Fourth Sunday. And there's a reason that it takes place on Fourth Sunday. Those that were enslaved in New Orleans um, in the 1800s Due to the noir codes at that time, they weren't working on Sundays. That doesn't make slavery any less harsh because they didn't work on Sundays. However, um, because of this free day, they gathered together in Congo Square on Sundays
2: thought to be some of the roots of jazz and rhythm and blues music.
4: Exactly. And a lot of our music forms and the the black community here in America is rooted in in improvisation. But it was here at this central point, Congo Square, that jazz was formed. The delta, you have the blues. So there's something powerful about coming together on Sundays that is part of our musical tradition and also our histories as well. So we want to be able to continue what our ancestors did by gathering on Sundays and be able to improvise, be able to feel the spirit of each other in community because in Congo Square, you had some of the earliest ciphers. And so we're continuing that tradition. So it's all in the, in the name, soul food. Whenever you think of soul food, you think of the dinner table, you think of people coming together. And of course, the cipher is what brings us all together and our cipher is complete.
2: And soul food cipher moves beyond the dinner table to yes. community projects. One flagship program is called 100. Yes, This is a monthly cipher that's geared for ages 16 and up. So what do you do in this program?
4: Absolutely. We have a community of MCs that have been working with us for eight years. I can't believe it that we've been doing this for eight years now. And 100 is the monthly convening. And during 100, we have different lyrical exercises that Zeno actually curates. And they center around different activities to be able to showcase the skill and the wit of the MCs. For example, our most popular segment is wordplay. And with wordplay, we put words and images on the screen. So that the MCs can improvise in real time. So we're really showing that the MCs are. So, like
2: giving them a prompt kind of
4: thing? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, as soon as the crowd sees it, the MCs see it at the same time, so you get to see the ingenuity. You get to see the lyrical dexterity of the MCs. And these aren't just your average words, these are SAT level words. These are also historical figures, these are also current events. So at the same time that the MC is performing and entertaining, we're also providing education as well. Um, we have community building exercises such as one by ones in which MCs can share. And what's beautiful about that is that you have people from different backgrounds who come to the cipher. So you might have someone who lives on the North side of town and you might have someone on the South side of town. They come together and through rhyme, they can be able to share a narrative with one another. Uh, we do writing assignments as well. Yep. And with writing assignments, uh, we give them seas a month to write about a particular subject, but the catch is they have to perform that acapella. So within that, We give them the opportunity to develop their public speaking skills Mm -hmm. and give them an opportunity to develop their performance skills. So, in essence, what we want to be able to do with 100 is to build MCs and showcase MCs in their truest light and their truest value, which is they're a city's greatest historian and they're also a city's greatest teacher. We can go back and we can listen to what MCs were talking about in the 90s and we can listen and hear about politics. We can also hear about what's going on in communities The narrative about MCs is that they are violent, that they are um, misogynistic. And yes, you do have some of those elements in the music, but I would say that the good and the great MCs outweigh the bad and that we want to be able to showcase the true elements and the true power of MCs.
2: My guests are Alex Acosta, Cost One, and Eric Zeno-Ludgood, co-founders of Soul Food Cypher. It's a freestyle rap nonprofit in Atlanta celebrating their eighth anniversary this month. And as you can hear, they do a lot in the community. Zeno, I want to ask you about that. A commercial rap is lyrics not necessarily known for inclusivity. And you know that homophobia, misogyny has come up. So what do you do in working with the MCs that you're working with when what? that comes up?
5: When those issues uh, come up or when those kind of lyrics come up, what we try to do is tell them that hip-hop has always had a spectrum, like a range of lyrics from reflecting what's going on in someone's community to, like Alex said, aspirational things to political things to storytelling. And if if they are going to relate something like that, we tell them to put it in context or not doing it just for shock value or... Communicating to them why we feel like that might not be the best approach or the best subject matter or the best way to say something. Like I said, just trying to put it in a larger context of MCing as having an MC as a community leader.
2: So somebody might, rather than like finger wagging and saying you can't talk like that, other MCs kind of course correct, I guess.
5: Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. And
4: I'd like to add on to that. So with Soul Food Cypher, we're built on three core principles. And the first core principle is respect. And whenever people are um, kind of veering off and going into shady areas, our crowd and also our MCs, they course correct by saying respect. Um, Our ciphers are also done without the aid of a microphone. So therefore, everything is self-projected. So if there's a lot of conversation that's going around in the peripheral of the cipher, you might also hear respect. So respect is at the core of what we do. There has been instances in which MCs have come into the cipher and they had messages of homophobia. Mm -hmm. And we let that be known that that is not what we do here. And then those MCs were corrected or they exited the cipher. Um, In addition to respect, we also have um, responsibility as another core value and then also knowledge. And it's our responsibility as MCs not only to move the crowd, but also move communities and also be representatives of the community and also the knowledge is very important. And again, MCs are our city's greatest historians and teachers. So therefore, knowledge is within our uh, core values.
5: Another thing we do is we go out of our way to make the cipher inclusive to every different kind of MC mm-hmm. from every from a lot yeah, of do different Do you have many
2: women or many uh, we or have, is it predominantly male?
5: We have one female member right now. Well,
4: one member, but we also have yep. other females that participate. Right, quite a few. And then um, we also have um, board members that are female. Yeah. And also I got to, you know, shout out my mom. She leads our volunteer staff, but she's at every single Cipher. Every cipher. And uh, she also makes sure to be inclusive of women as well. So uh, women are a major component of our ciphers, and we are looking for more women to participate within the cipher itself. But women are critical to the organization as a whole.
2: So you're, you're, you're both teaching these young people to freestyle at the same time, underscoring that there is no, quote, right way to do this, right? How do you teach your MCs to find that voice to actually feels right and authentic to them?
5: We put them on the spot. (laughs) I mean, we're constantly putting them on the spot. I mean, that's like the essence of freestyling is like having, being ready, like at any time to go, you know, on any kind of beat. And the more you do it, the more you realize, oh, well, I like this kind of cadence or these kinds of words reflect me or this inflection is a big part of who I am and my my background. And that, that comes out, especially with the exercises, um... So yeah, that's that's how we do it. We do it through the actual cipher itself. We we sharpen, try to sharpen the MCs with the actual activities that we're asking them to do.
2: So what are some of those prompts? Like what are one of those things that might flash up on the screen? Um, oh, actually, I'm going to go further. Can I put you on the spot? <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> and come up with a prompt maybe, yeah. and then and then you can just riff off of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can
5: just give me a word and. Um, And I can say something about that.
4: And what I'll do is um, I can provide the beatbox, but if you can, um, in the first bar, if you can say the word, he can catch it. Let's do it. Okay, bread. Bread
5: bread is what I make. Sometimes it's what I bake. Sometimes it's what I take to work for lunch and came back in a crunch. I do it quite a bunch and sometimes I will bunch you in with others so I'll get smothered. Came back volume. for all the volume. Turn it up louder. Eat it with some chowder. Crowd her in. Don't do that. Be a friend. Don't be a rude cat. Say no bathroom. I do that so frequently. So fluently. You can do it free. Anything between here and there. For Square for square. Hair for I do not dare compare between anything that's serendipitous. This means it's meant to be happening. There's so much serendipity. Come rip with me. I do it through for infinity. Stand out with ubiquity. (laughs) (laughs) Dope. We did it. We did.
4: That might be
2: the first freestyle... (laughs)
4: In the GPB studio, Uh, I'm going to say right now. This one is black history. I think you just made history, (laughs) man. You know? (laughs) Yeah.
2: Okay, we're we're looking forward. You're coming up on your eighth anniversary now. Absolutely. Where where is Soul Food Cipher going? What are you looking to do in the future for Soul Food Cipher?
4: Absolutely. So in celebration of our eight-year anniversary, we're launching a new campaign. And that campaign is 100 MCs. And we're looking for 100 MCs to join our cipher because— Freestyle rap is not necessarily celebrated as much as it has been in the past. But with freestyle rap, you can not only tell an MC's skill, but you can also tell their soul. What they freestyle about, what they're thinking, you get a spotlight into an MC's state of mind. But also, what's special about freestyle is that it's one of the greatest displays of faith. To be able just to have the faith that the next word is going to come out and not only make sense, but also rhyme and also be on time, it's a great display of faith. So what we want to be able to do is take this craft and grow it and be able to showcase it in its best form. And our idea is for us to be able to get 100 MCs here in Atlanta, but then also start chapters throughout the country. And that's all going to route into a national tournament in which these MCs can compete on a national stage.
2: We'll put links on our GPB News website as well. Cost One, I want to thank you so much.
4: Thank you for having us. And Zeno. Thanks.
2: That is Eric Zeno ludgood and Alex Acosta, co-founders of Soul Food Cipher, a nonprofit that holds monthly freestyle rap ciphers, free and open to anyone. They are celebrating the 8th anniversary of the organization at an event on Sunday, the 23rd of February at 6 at the Annex Bookstore in Atlanta. Alex and Zaino are also beatboxing us out of our show today. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan, supervising producer is Amelia Brock, Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer, are our engineers. Our intern is Julia Sanders and executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On
4: Second Thought.